So we are in part three of our series on Ephesians. So go ahead and find the letter to the Ephesians if you haven't already. Ephesians is in the New Testament. Actually, in our adult Sabbath school discussion, we were hanging out in a lot of the passages that we're going to be, well, the one passage that we're going to be zeroing in on today, Ephesians chapter 2, the last half of Ephesians. Just by a show of hands, for those of you who have already been to one of these, um, these teachings, Ephesians chapter 1, and then yesterday, or last week on Ephesians chapter 2, how many of you have actually taken some time to open up on your own? to the letter of Ephesians and actually try reading through the letter. Has anybody done it? Yeah, awesome. We got a taker. Any others? If you haven't, we've got, we're going to be going through Ephesians throughout the end of June. So I would encourage you, go ahead, take an afternoon, take an evening. Um, maybe you don't have to read through the entirety of the letter in one sitting, but it is, it's really neat. It's, an, it's another experience, just reading a letter, you know, taking it as that, as communication from a spiritual hero and just saying, hey, this is something that he is writing to me, that God is wanting to speak to me through Paul. So uh, if you haven't done that, go ahead and take an opportunity. If you're in Ephesians chapter 2, go ahead and say, I'm there. there. All right, we're going to pray. We're going to dive right in, starting in verse 11. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to seek you. We want to seek you in your word. We're asking God that you would speak as you've done in the past, but that, that you would speak in a way that maybe... Is, is new and fresh. And so we're asking, Lord, that you would give us a vision of uniting grace today. In Jesus' saving and precious name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. So if you've read the Bible through or if you've been acquainted with Scripture, you'll find story after story of individuals who have an experience with God's grace, you know? When you think about people like Adam and Eve, right from the very beginning, they they experienced God's grace. They should have died, but they didn't die. I don't know if you realize that. Yeah, they were exited out of the garden, but in that day, they should have died. Um, You know, you think about Abraham and Noah and all of these individuals, Moses, all throughout Scripture, and then the people that Jesus interacts with in his earthly ministry. All these people have real encounters with God's amazing grace. And the Apostle Paul, the one who's writing this letter to the Ephesians, is someone who has also experienced grace. I mean, you think about his story. He wasn't always named Paul. You remember that, right? He used to be known as Saul. And at one point in time, you know, Acts chapter 9 records that he's writing into Damascus from Jerusalem. He's got letters from the authorities saying, hey, I have authority to imprison people who believe in Jesus, who confess the name of Jesus. But his experience that day converted him, right? He encountered grace. Literally, grace knocked him off of his horse. And, um, and he experienced amazing grace. But I would also say that he didn't just experience saving grace. He also experienced what I like to call uniting grace. Because that day, or maybe it was, I guess, three days later, right? Three days, he's blinded. He's, he's at someone's home. And, and then there's a Christian believer in Damascus. His name is Ananias. And Ananias receives a word from the Lord saying, hey, you need to go to this person's house and find this brother Saul. Brother Saul, you need to pray for him because he is praying. And somehow Paul, or Saul's experience of grace actually united him with people that he had previously been disconnected from. Do you follow me? Yeah. And then when Saul tries to go back to Jerusalem and tries to integrate with the disciples there, they're afraid. But there is an individual named Barnabas, who is the son of encouragement, who is responsible for helping Paul experience not just saving grace, but also uniting grace. 
And so today we're going to look at Ephesians 2. And it's my prayer that, you know, I think we all know that sin has wreaked havoc on our relationships. Not just our relationship with God, but our relationships with one another. Uh, in our discussion this morning, sin, selfishness, pride. If sin and, or if selfishness and pride, I think was one of the quotes. If selfishness and pride were laid aside, it would just take five minutes to resolve conflicts, right? <laughs> or I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, we saw that there. And so as we study Ephesians 2, we're going to start halfway through verse 11 and onward. As we study Ephesians 2, I hope that we can grasp the healing beauty of the gospel. That saving grace is uniting grace too. Okay? So we're going to find, as we study Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, we're going to find three realities of what we're calling uniting grace. Are you ready? You ready? Okay. So here we go. Starting in verse 11, we'll just take 11 to 13, kind of uh, uh, partition this, this chapter out, or this passage, and I'll start in verse 11. I'm reading the New King James Version. The first word in my Bible, what's the first word in your Bible? Therefore, okay, so it's a continuation of what we studied last week about saving grace and how, you know, God's grace makes us alive from the dead. Doesn't just make us good, but makes us alive. And so therefore, remember, okay, there's the imperative. Therefore, remember what? Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are also called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Whew. That does sound like no hope, right? That does sound like a, a very solitary, isolated place to be. So therefore, let's, let's kind of break this down a little bit. Therefore, in view of the saving grace that Paul has just outlined in the first 10 verses, there is something that he wants the Gentiles to remember. In other words, something about their story of he, what he wants them to kind of recollect and of what they used to be. And if you take a look there in verse 12, you kind of see that description of what they used to be. That at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These are people who had been not just um, like in idea, like not just in theory alienated, but they had been actively alienated. I mean, you think about the resistance that, that um, I mean, you think about Paul's imprisonment do you remember the circumstances for Paul's imprisonment? Uh, he was in Jerusalem, and the brethren had suggested that he bring uh, an offering to the temple. And then, uh, I don't know if you remember this, this is Acts chapter 21, and starting in verse 27 or 28, there's an outcry that comes up. Hey, there's the guy that brings Gentiles into the temple. Do you remember that? Yeah, so th there, was, there was active resistance to people who are non-Jewish to be around supposedly Jewish things. And so they were without Christ. They were without hope. They were without community. But I love this. In verse 13, the first two words in my version, it says, but now, right? So it totally interrupts that narrative. Totally uh, kind of like verse 4 where it says, but God, um, kind of interrupting the story here. But now in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been what? 
brought near by the blood of Christ. Those two words, or three words, were far off. Um, the last time it's used is in Luke chapter 15. It's talking about the prodigal son who was far off, you know, in a far off country, distant land. He was far from his father, but he was also far from his father's family. But you who were afar off are now brought near. Literally, actually, it's not just brought near, uh, but it, the, the, the Greek translation is become near become near. In other words, it wasn't just about the bearings of the prodigal son or the bearings of the, the Gentiles, but the being. Um, it wasn't just about geography being brought near in terms of geography, but being brought near in terms of identity and community. And so you who are afar off, who are cast out, you're actually brought into the circle, so to speak. Uniting grace brought them near to what they were far from, not just the place, not just the precincts of the temple, although that was part of it, but they were now brought near to the family. They were brought near to the community, being part of God's people. That, that whole covenant promise, I will be your God and, and you will be my people, they could claim that for themselves now. That was good news. That was really good news. That's me now. Do you know that when the blood of Christ draws you near to God, the blood of Christ also draws you near to God's family? Do you realize that? I think that's what Paul is trying to help us flesh out. Hey, saving grace, that's great. But saving grace is also uniting grace. The blood of Jesus brings you near to, to God. But the blood of Jesus also brings you near to those around you. And so reality number one, we're looking at three realities here about uniting grace. Reality number one is simply this. Let's see here if I can get this. <laughs> I'll use the clicker. Reality number one is simply this. Uniting grace brings me near to Christ and to community. Can we remember this? Um, why, why should we remember this? Remember, Paul is telling, telling the Ephesians, therefore remember, okay? Remember that this was your circumstance. Why should we remember this? What's the big deal? I think the big deal is that we remember not just the fact of our newfound nearness, but the means of our nearness. And the means, according to verse 13, you, you who once were afar off have been brought near by what means? According to verse 13, by the blood of Christ. Here's the key. When we remember that that's how I was brought near, it's going to be easier for me to remember that's how my brother or sister was brought near too. You follow me? In other words, when we remember that we are prodigals brought near by grace, we have no right in keeping other prodigals outside the property line. Yeah? You and I were not brought near because of something we did or something we deserved. So why should we require others to earn their belonging to Jesus? Why should we require others to earn their belonging to God's people? We can let people receive saving grace and with it uniting grace too. Amen? That's why Paul wants the Ephesians to remember this. Hey, remember that you, you were once far off, but you were brought near by something not that you did, something that God did for you, the blood of Christ. So when there are others who feel far off, hey, introduce them to that very same grace. You've experienced uniting grace. You can extend uniting grace too. So reality number one, uniting grace brings me near to Christ and to community. All right, let's go on. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Paul starts to answer the how. How can this, 
this miracle of uniting grace actually function? How does this really work? And as we read through these verses, uh, we'll go through from 14 to 18. I want you to take notes of two things. Note how, uh, how Paul highlights God's creative work and also how Paul highlights God's destructive work. All right, let's see if we can pick that up. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. We'll stop right here. Have you seen creative work and destructive work yet in this verse? Yeah. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Okay, keep, keep going. Having abolished, there's a destructive term, abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to do what? create okay there's creative work create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to god in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father Okay, just a little bit of context. Again, Paul is dealing with two very different groups of people, Gentile believers and Jewish believers, yeah? And these believers are supposedly part of the same community, but they haven't experienced that in reality. And so Paul is reminding people, hey, look, look, uh, everything that, that God has done to save you, he's also trying to unite you too. And so let's take a look at the language here. Um, the, the creative work of Jesus, we found it in verse 14, who has made both one, right? And then in verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man or a new humanity. And then in, uh, I think later on, thus making peace. Here's the thing about, about God or about the, the, the saving work of Jesus. Grace is something that creates a brand new humanity, that's powerful to me. I don't know if we, we really let that sink in, but I love that. Uh, so as to create in himself, this is verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man. Maybe your version says one new humanity from the two, thus making peace. Do you know the last time that that language comes up, or the first time I should say, the first time that that language comes up, making one out of two? That's creation, yeah, Genesis taking two individuals, what God has joined together, let man not break asunder, yeah? And so he's using this very intimate language to talk about creation of a new humanity, and this creation comes via the destruction of other things. This is actually something that uh, begins a new pattern that when God creates something new or recreates, we should say, he'll he'll destroy in order to recreate. Remember uh, Revelation 21, that grand vision of a new heaven and a new earth. But Revelation 21 comes right after Revelation 20. It's the lake of fire, the destruction of the earth. God's creative work often is preceded by God's destructive work. And so if God wants to create a new humanity, if he wants to create a new family, if he wants to create a new marriage, there are things that need to be destroyed. If he wants to create a new heart, there's something that needs to be broken down. And so in this this context, you know, he's dealing with the community of Jewish and Gentile believers. But there was something that needed to be broken down. What was it that needed to be broken down? What was the hostility 
that Jesus abolished. In verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Uh, enmity means hostility or that feeling that's uh, between enemies. Okay? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now let's admit that some, uh, some very genuine believers have mistakenly understood this as saying, oh, that, that means that in the cross or in the death of Jesus, the Ten Commandments have been abolished or been destroyed because that was something that got in between people. When in reality, Jesus himself said, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? And so Paul must not be contradicting what Jesus is saying. He must be talking about something else. And he does explain himself, right? Especially in verse 14, when he talks about a middle wall of separation, he's talking about something that was more than just a physical edifice. He's talking about a barrier that was not physical, but relational. Okay. The relational barriers of the Jewish ceremonial law that isolated Jews from Gentiles. I mean, he's already mentioned two labels that were thrown around, circumcision and uncircumcision. These were things that separated them, made them different. And while God did give them these laws, these ceremonies, to make them distinct, he didn't make them in order to separate themselves from other people. He made these laws to separate them from sin. Okay, that's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And so... What Christ did in his death and resurrection was he fulfilled these things, these ceremonial laws, in order to bring about the, the realness of it. These things were, uh, excuse me, these were things even Jewish Christians were tempted to harp on as points of criticism and judgmentalism, even spiritual elitism. I mean, can you imagine going to church and saying, well, I'm, I've done this, but you haven't been able to do that. And so, too bad for you. <laughs> I've got more points than the Sabbath school poster, you know, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> These were things that very real are in, a, in their real dynamics, in their uh, everyday conversations. They, they kind of allowed themselves to become puffed up over one another. These ceremonial laws created a very real sense of hostility, enmity, resentment, bitterness in the community. It created a relational Grand Canyon, so to speak, between Jew and Gentile, all in one quote-unquote, church. But I praise God that Jesus is our peace. Yeah, and that's what Paul is reminding them. Hey, Jesus himself, he's not just one who gives peace. He is peace. Peace. I love that. Peace is a very special word. Um, it refers to something. Uh, it's actually, so erene is the Greek word. It's really pulling from that shalom idea in the Old Testament. And the root word for erene is the verb airo which means to join or tie together as a whole. I love that. So peace is not just everything's calm. Peace is not just serenity or quietness. Peace is actually everything's there. Everything's tied together. Nothing's missing and nothing's broken. So when we're talking about peace in relationships, everything's there. It's tied together. It didn't just, it wasn't just thrown together. It was intentionally, craftfully tied together. You follow that? I mean, this is what Jesus is for us. And he makes this for us. Through Calvary, Jesus crushed enmity and created peace. Through Calvary, it's more than just a feeling of serenity and calm and quiet that he gives us. Through Calvary, he gives us wholeness. Colossians 2 says we are complete in him. 
We have peace. We're joined together. And so reality number two about uniting grace. So reality number one is that, uh, that the blood of Christ draws us near to Christ and to community. But reality number two is this. Uniting grace creates wholeness by crushing hostility. By crushing hostility. That's the power of the cross. I, I don't know if you realize that. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what First John tells us. And um, I mean, the very first promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15 uh, is actually given to, it's not as a promise, it's actually a threat to the serpent. <laughs> God says, the seed, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Okay, <laughs> this is something about God's salvation. Salvation, yes, it creates something very new and whole for us, but it also destroys things that would get in the way of that wholeness. So Jesus is our wholeness. He's our peace, both individually and collectively. So many of us, I mean, all of us, we want a marriage that is whole and complete, tied together, nothing missing, nothing broken. Well, it's in Jesus. He's our peace. We want a family that's whole and complete. We want parent-child relationships that are whole and complete, nothing missing. It's in Jesus. We want a church that's whole and complete. It's in Jesus. If Jesus is our peace, it's impossible to know peace without him. Why try? Stop trying. Stop struggling to make peace. Surrender to the one who is peace. Big difference. If Jesus is our peace, it's impossible to know him or to know peace without him. And if peace and wholeness and completeness seems out of reach to us, then maybe we've been keeping Jesus at arm's length. Right? If Jesus is our peace, then maybe we've been keeping Jesus at arm's length. Question today, are there things in my relational life or your relational life that Jesus needs to break or crush or put to death in order to make things whole? There's wholeness that we, we want him to create in our whatever relational circle it is that we're concerned about. Is there relational hostility that you feel walled in by? Maybe it's not like in this case, maybe it's not a set of ordinances or policies or commandments, or, uh, but maybe they, they could be a set of expectations unmet. Maybe there are assumptions that are made. Maybe there are prejudices held, grievances or grudges, a list of wrongs that need to be righted, hurts that need to be healed. Or maybe they're even habitual harm, patterns of dysfunction and distrust. It may be even personal moral failures that have gotten the way or have overflowed into affecting your relational wholeness as well. Whatever it is, whatever hostility, barriers, things that are separating, the gospel that Paul is highlighting is that on the cross, those barriers are no match for the grace of Jesus. <laughs> On the cross, God's word declares that Jesus put that hostility, that barrier, that wall of separation to death. It's broken down. So maybe part of the, my experience of the gospel is not just saying that, okay, Jesus forgives me for all my moral shortcomings and things like that, but maybe part of the gospel is actually receiving faith to say that he's making me whole with other people too. I believe, I believe 
that Paul was trying to do this. <laughs> he, was, he, was, uh, he was really declaring this, this, this reality that Jesus put the enmity and hostility to death. And I wonder how many times we are grave digging, trying to bring things to life that Jesus has already put to death. Can I get a witness? <laughs> uh, why is it? Why is it? I, I don't know. Maybe that's, not, that's the wrong question. The question is, what do we do now? Let's stop rummaging through the grave. Jesus has put those things to death in my life and in other people's lives. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes a really another clear statement. He says, hey, um, we've been made new creatures. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And then he says, actually, maybe it's the verse before that, in verse 16. We no longer view each other according to the flesh. In other words, if, if I am accepting grace, then the way I view other people is as if they're accepting grace too. Even if they may not necessarily be in the spirit, I am not going to view them according to the flesh. I'm not going to let the grave, the things that Jesus has already put to death, I'm not going to let those things be alive. Okay? And so I believe this is what Paul was doing. He was proclaiming peace. He was being a peacemaker by honestly acknowledging what caused the separation and by courageously believing that those things are crushed in Christ. And this is what he's trying to do for the community. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Hey, there's hostility here. There's the middle wall of separation. Wait, that's, that's already dead. Jesus put that to death on the cross. Can we just let that be in the grave? That's what Paul's saying. <laughs> can we just let that be in the grave? And I believe we can do that too. When we're honest with the hostilities and barriers, we can let Jesus be our peace today. We can let him create wholeness as he crushes hostility. But we've got to let him. We've got to let him. I want to let him. How many of you want to let him? <laughs> yeah. All right. There's a third reality. Reality about uniting grace. So he, the blood of Christ brings us near to Christ and to community. The uniting grace, um, it creates wholeness by crushing hostility. And there's a third one here. We'll get to it. There's verse 19. <clears throat> Paul is going to introduce us now to a a metaphor to show us the results of what happens when we actually let uniting grace at work in our lives. And the metaphor he uses is something called a household. At least that's how it is in my version. In verse 19, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, now, therefore, all right, in light of all of that, in light of what's put to death on the cross, in light of Jesus being your peace, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, my Bible says, household of God. Does anybody else's version say it differently? What is it? God's house? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe your Bible says family of God. I love this. This is a flexible metaphor because, yeah, it points to this idea of relationship, family in the household, you know, that kind of thing. But it also has, has other dynamics too. So let's just kind of explore this because it shows the beautiful and powerful results of, of uniting grace. So household of God, household of God. One, it shows us that there's family dynamics here. All right. It's not just that, that, okay, we're part of the same uh, collective group or identity. No, we're family. We're family. Yes, we belong to the father. We, we know that we're family with him. First John three tells us, behold, what manner of love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, sons of God, daughters of God. I love it. Yes, we belong to the Father. We're his kids when we respond to grace. 
But do you know that when we respond to grace, he's my brother and she's my sister? There's a brotherhood, a sisterhood. That's what Paul is saying. Hey, we're a household here. We belong to each other in as much as we belong to God. You and I belong to each other in as much as you and I belong to God. That's significant. We ought to be tied together by deep bonds of affection and loyalty. That's what Paul, that's one of the things Paul wants to communicate about this household metaphor. But I think there's another dynamic because household is also a structural thing too, right? And so notice how Paul uh, plays on this structural uh, idea. Verse 20, having been built on the what? On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So with this idea of uniting grace, we're not just a family, but we're also a structure that's built on something. And whenever you build a structure, I'm, okay, so I'll admit, I'm not much of a builder. But if I were a builder, I'd want to pay attention to the foundation first, right? Right, right? Because with a poor foundation, you're going to have a, a poor structure, and so the foundation is key. What is this foundation according to verse, nine, or verse 20? Having been built on the foundation of who? The apostles and prophets? Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, right? Basically what Paul is saying is when he's talking about the apostles and prophets, he's talking about New Testament uh, authority as well as Old Testament authority. He's really referring to scripture here. Old Testament and New Testament combined and then with Christ as a chief cornerstone, meaning the, the, the very stone that lines things up, anything outside of that is really irrelevant and it's not good for the structure. It's not good for the foundation. So he's talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament as it reveals Jesus. Yeah? I mean, we can have community, we can have unity on things that are outside the Old Testament, on things that are outside the New Testament, even on things that are inside the Old Testament and New Testament. But if they're not pointing to Jesus... What kind of foundation is that? Right? That's what Paul is saying. This kind of family must be built on the word of truth as Christ is the cornerstone. And I think, you know, we're all, we're, we can be aware that there are currents of unity that are around us, even within mainstream Christianity, that are really not built on the foundation of God's word. Right? That, that's, a, that's a false unity. Uh, in fact, it's a unity that's built on a compromise of God's word. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You've got to have a firm foundation. If you're going to be the household of God, you've got to have a firm foundation on God's word as it points to Jesus. Amen. Right? So this is the household metaphor. It's, it's talking about relationships, but it's also talking about structure. And then uh, just kind of carrying on this, this idea of structure in verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together. I love that fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So it's not just family, it's not just foundation, but it's also fitting, fitting. And I like that it's talking about being fitted together. In other words, there's a process of being connected. Connection and fit doesn't happen automatically. You don't just drop off lumber at the, at the, uh, the property site and expect that a structure will be up, All right? So I don't know how many of you visited our home um, maybe uh, in the last year or within the first year of our, of our moving in, but there was an empty lot. Actually, it wasn't empty. It had a foundation, <laughs> but no building on it. It had just, it had been abandoned by the builders. So there was this foundation that was a kind of a hazard to our kids 
although they made it into a really big sandbox at times. But um, anyways, so there's this foundation. But, you know, eventually we saw people like dropping off lumber and things like that. And we were getting excited. But there's there's a difference between being in the same lumber yard and being fitted together. Right. Why? Because it requires skill and intentionality to fit the pieces together, to cut them to size. There, so it, this doesn't happen by accident. God envisions us not just being in the same lumber yard, but skillfully interconnected, continually learning to rely on each other's presence and strengths in order to be, in order to function as community. So uh, this household metaphor that he brings up, it, yeah, it, it connotes family, it connotes a foundation, it expresses this idea of fitting together, maybe fitting together over time, realizing that that doesn't happen by accident. And, oh, maybe, you know, we try to fit, but, oh, it's not the right size. We got to keep shaving things down or recutting and things. And so in our desire to fit, you know, whether it's our church community or family circle or even your workplace community, maybe some of us get, you know, run into walls there. We realize that there's a process of being fitted together. That's what Paul is highlighting here. And in, in verse 22, it finally, he ends with the function of, this, of this, uh, this unity. In whom you also are being built together for what? For a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Whoa. This identifies the true purpose of being fitted together, the true purpose of our identity of oneness and community. When, in other words, when God brings us together as his household to have brothers and sisters in Christ and him as our father, when God founds us on the foundation of, of the word and of Christ, when he fits us together over time, the whole purpose, the function of this is so that we can be a dwelling place of God's very presence. In other words, when people see the two becoming one, when people see the middle wall of separation broken down, when people see reconciliation and community happening, people are supposed to say, oh, that's where God is. That's who God is. It's supposed to, you know, just as much as the the oneness of marriage reflects the image of God, the oneness of community reflects the very presence of God. And so reality number three about uniting grace Reality to three, uniting grace builds God's people to reveal God's presence. It's not just so we can have a hunky-dory time and be, you know, cool and have a team and, and a nice club. No, it's to reveal the presence of God. That's the purpose, to reveal God's presence. Uniting grace builds God's people to reveal God's presence. And so this is the beauty of uniting grace. Uh, maybe just to summarize it here, uniting grace, it brings me near to Christ and to community. It creates wholeness by crushing hostility and it builds God's people to reveal God's presence. Simple appeal today. How many of us want to accept not just saving grace, but uniting grace too? Yeah. And maybe the, 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 the other side of the coin there is, okay, I want to receive that but am I willing to extend that grace? Extend, not just saving grace, but also uniting grace too. I want us to commit this morning to uniting grace day by day. I wonder today, which of these three realities, um, which of these three realities do you particularly need God to make more real in your relationships? 
Is there one that stands out to you? Is there something that, or maybe it's uh, the combination of all three. I, those are realities in scripture, but they're not realities in my you know, family circle or my workplace or my, my experience at church or whatever the, the case might be. Is there a particular circle you know, that you're really wanting to surrender to God today? Maybe the first reality is standing out to you. Man, uh, uniting grace is supposed to bring me near to Christ, but I, I don't necessarily feel like it's bringing near, me near to community. Um, maybe we should take Paul's counsel to remember. Okay, remember and then to reciprocate. Remember that Christ's blood brought me near. Um, how can I reciprocate that? How can I reflect that to others? If you find yourself consciously or unconsciously alienating others from community, remember that you belong by grace so that you can allow others to belong by grace too. Maybe the second one, you long for God to create wholeness by crushing hostility in your life. So we need to be willing to examine. Examine for any enmity that we're kind of cherishing. Examine for any enmity that we're allowing to settle or take root in our relationships. If relational peace and wholeness is lacking, let's ask ourselves, what do I need to let Jesus break? What do I need to let Jesus crush in order for him to create something whole? Maybe it's the third one. You desire God's presence to be felt and revealed in your relationships, but you're not quite sure how that's, that's going to happen. And so just taking this household metaphor, maybe we need to seek a foundation that's really built on God's word. Maybe we need to let God lead us in a process of learning how to fit with others in our community. Maybe we need to be recut and resized ourselves to be skillfully interconnected by his hands. So as we wrap up today, I, I wonder, wanted to just kind of open up some time for, for prayer whether silent prayer on your own or finding somebody next to you and saying, you know what, Let's, I, I just need prayer about this. Would you please pray for wholeness in my relationships here in this circle or here in this sphere? So can we do that? Let's spend some time praying together for these realities to become more real in our relationships. Okay, I'll give you three or four minutes and then we'll wrap up with a word of prayer. Ready, set, go. Go.